I'm going to open us in prayer and then introduce myself a little bit and we'll get started. Thanks for coming. <clears throat> Jesus, would you be with us? Um, we, uh, we come to um, a seminar uh, like this, probably, which is fairly, uh, it's a huge topic. Um, it's rather technical. It is uh, laced with all kinds of um, history and movies and, and, um, and popular uh, books. And honestly, it's one of the things that causes us a lot of doubt. Um, how can I rely on this um, thing I have in my hands? And each of us comes from a different place. God, you know our, um, our hearts and our minds and our needs more than we do, certainly more than I do in this room. Would you be with us? Uh, I just ask for good discussion. I ask for clarity. I ask, um, Jesus, that you have used, uh, that you will use what I have uh, been able to, um, to do in this, um, in this area, even as, uh, some ways a week as I feel in it, um, to help, to help us. Um, Spirit, we need you. Be with us, we pray. Amen. 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 Let me just, um, introduce myself a little bit. This is actually um, my first time here like as a campus minister bringing students, which is awesome. And uh, Oh, hey, there's Julia. My intern back there. Um, uh, Julia, uh, I'm from Colorado State, and uh, I've been there for four years now. I was in um, Seattle before that doing RUF, but I can't get students here because Seattle's on the quarter system and like even farther than we drove from Colorado. And so they're in school till June, and, and uh, this is our first time coming here. So I'm extremely excited to be here. Um, my name is Ryan Hughes, and um, I have a family. They're also here. We flew them. Didn't drive them. Uh, wife, Amy, awesome uh, wife, and three little daughters. So um, we are from New Mexico, both of us. And I remember as a student, as an RUS student, in the 90s, <laughs> driving from... Uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, out here. Is anybody in here from New Mexico State? Oh, you're, you lived in New Mexico for a while. No? Anyone? Okay. Um, anyways, um, so I'm in Colorado now. I'm glad to be out here. Um, I'm in my 10th, uh, I think, year, 11th year with RUF or something. Um, so we did this a long time. And I'm so excited to be here, like, be here actually, like, as a campus minister with some of my crew. Uh, none of them are here. I told them they couldn't come to this because they've heard me talk about this before. So uh, please go hear somebody else. Another RUF. We have so little contact with other RUF people in Colorado because we're kind of isolated. So anyway. Um, is anybody in here here at Summer Conference for the first time? Oh, wow. A good number of you. Half or so. Okay, good. Cool. Well, welcome. Um, who had the longest drive with you first-timers? And how miserable was it? <laughs> any Vermont people? Minnesota? 17 hours. 17 from? Well, it's 9 hours from D.C. to Knoxville, and then Knoxville to here was 8 hours. Yeah, and okay, so 17. You broke it up in two days, yeah. Knoxville. Okay, cool. Well, good, we're here. You're here. We're at the beach. Let's do this. Um... I want to introduce what we're going to do briefly and then um, ask you for your engagement. And I'm going to take a little bit of a risk, I think, this week. We'll see how it happens or see how it works. Um, I um, Just some comments about guiding our time. I've done a lot of... Uh, this topic is important to me personally because the short version is... I was a Christian for a, you know, a while, came into RUF and uh, heard about grace and loved Jesus. It was awesome. RUF literally changed my life in every way. 
And I got to seminary, I'm thinking about ministry, and I'm like, is this real? Um, how do I know? Because I'm spending my life, you know, going toward this, and I'm reading all these words, and then the more I studied, like Greek and Hebrew, like the deeper I got, the more I'm like, wait a second, the Bible I have in front of me is not the... This, this this thing, you know, the NIV version, ESV version, this is not the whole story. And there, uh, there is like, there's a depth of history and documents and, and, and languages and translations of translations and Latin back into, you know, uh, into Aramaic and Aramaic back into Latin and Greek and here, like, what is going on? And then, uh, then the question was, and I started reading more, a lot of people don't really think that we... You know, Jesus was a historical person, but did he do these things? Does it matter? And I became, the, you know. So anyway, this this is important to me, not purely from an academic perspective, although that's important, but like personally, and like does what I do matter? So I don't know where you are on this. I'm assuming that if you're in this seminar, like you're pretty serious about this, and um, and you want to know like data and stuff, and you have a lot of questions, and you want to really get behind the scenes of maybe the translation you have in front of you, the, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever, the, the, the College Life Bible, and uh, like, how did I get this, you know, and um, how come my friend has the NASB, and, and so my other friend just, just will not stop talking about how the King James Bible is just the best one, and, and I've got the ESV, and my campus minister says the ESV is the only one I should have. <laughs> Why? Um, so, and some of you have, like, deep academic uh, questions like you maybe even read some, you know, some uh, German higher critic scholars. If you know what I'm talking about, you were that person, um, and uh, and you just don't know. Like you have deep doubt maybe, and some of you are maybe just like I literally know nothing about this. This might be interesting. So one can never hit all of the bases, right? But um, I want to uh, touch on all of those things. Um, mostly, what we're going to be talking about um, are the Gospels. Okay, with reference to some of the uh, other New Testament documents, I'm actually going to tell you the story of the Old Testament very briefly this morning, of how we got the Hebrew Old Testament or the Tanakh, if you're you know super um, uh, Hebrew about it, and then begin to talk about Jesus as a historical figure, how the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, talk about him and how we might, if we can, know anything reliably about all of that. Okay, so another goal I have is to use the best arguments of all, of all sides. Now, I say that, here's my caveat. I, okay, I do campus ministry at Colorado State. I'm better at volleyball than being an academic, okay? So I've read that I'm not from Harvard, Okay, I didn't come from like the Eastern Seaboard where like everybody's smart. Okay, so um, I'm a li- in some ways um, like I'm not super academic, but um, I do want to um, engage you know a lot of the big, um, the important writers and all that kind of thing. And the best arguments that I have discovered, I will bring to you. So um, the things that make you think, oh man, maybe this really isn't true, or the things that make you think, oh wow, I think this really might be true. Okay. So that's just one of my goals. You can let me know whether or not I hit it. Okay, so here's the scary thing for me. I would love for you to text me or write down and give to me. Here's my cellular device number. Um, your questions. So, I mean, I have, um, I have books and books and books and 20-some pages of stuff. 
Um, I would love to know what questions you come in here with, particularly, because I think I might be able to, at this point in my ministry, 10 years in a seminary degree, might be able to at least touch on all of them, or at least refer you to something. That's really scary for a teacher to do. Tell me what, you know, you all, you all decide. Because um, I hate saying I don't know, but I may say I don't know. So, um, text me your questions. In other words, like why you're in this seminar, okay? And we have a lot of time together, so I think I can flex around and hit those if, I, if I'm capable of it. Um, and then the other thing is, um, questions at any time during this, please. Um, so, yeah, don't be afraid to jump in, raise your hand, whatever. Um, so I'm going to rely on you to text me or write me your questions to answer the question of why you're in the seminar, so we won't do that now. Um, we'll just kind of dive in. That works for everybody. Um, you know, maybe you're wondering, like, um, what do you, why, maybe why this seminar? Um, what is all the hullabaloo about the New Testament anyway? Um, because, and I, I think some, most of this is probably in your handout, a lot of people, I, I think, really genuinely believe today, maybe this is you, like, look, honestly, I'm not really sure that it matters whether or not, you know, I can um, historically verify what's going on in the New Testament. Because at the end of the day, isn't it faith in Jesus that, you know, isn't it the spiritual aspect that will form my life? Um, if you don't articulate that this way, note uh, a lot of your friends probably do. Um, you know, isn't it the religious teaching that's important? Isn't it transformative? Look, there's no denying that, you know, whatever you might read from the Bible that feel like it's not a reliable document, whatever, um, can actually be transformative in your life. Um, does it really matter that Jesus actually said and did the things he said he did? Well, um, I actually toyed with that for a while, back and forth. Sometimes I still do. But then I keep coming across with what the Bible says about itself and why, at least in terms of the early people who followed this thing, their self-conception of why this mattered to them. So, you've probably heard this text before, but 1 Corinthians 15, um, a few verses out of there. This is the Apostle Paul writing. And here's his opinion on why this matters. If there is no resurrection of the dead, you know, a, um, a historical event, maybe, uh, then um, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain, we are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ. So here's the... Oh well, actually, let me, let me read the second part. And, the, and the, He goes on to say, And if Christ has not been raised and your faith is futile, okay, or your faith is in vain, our preaching is in vain, here's the crux of the issue. The New Testament documents themselves take a historical event and say, if this historical event did not happen, then your faith is useless. So I think one of the challenging things about coming to a topic like this is trying to hold those things in tension. Historical reliability, what happened in time and space, and my faith, my morals, what I believe, what compels me. And the reason this is important, at least for me, and we're going to talk about some other reasons for it, but like, honestly, it's like, 
Can I hold intention, faith, and history? Or even better, can I bring them together and make them work out? I just think it's really interesting, despite you know the, the, um, our postmodern age, and despite um, you know our just our love of science, and I need like the hardcore fact. The Bible itself is asking us to hold historical events along with faith, and saying you can't have one without the other. In fact, they both go together or have to go together. Um, and um, Tim Keller's written on this um, some, and I think, um, see here, um, you have this quote in there, but the central message of every other religion is, he writes, you're saved by what you do, you know, by living this way and such and such. But the central message of Christian documents is the very opposite of that. In fact, you are saved not by what you do, but by what Jesus has done. So one step farther from what we just said. Like, honestly... If we're taking the New Testament seriously, we have to, we not only conclude that you know faith must work together with historical events, but actually what matters most is what Jesus did. Right? Not even whether or not I have faith in them or in it. Ugh, that's a whole other level. Right? So that's why at least one reason why this matters. Um, matters at least to me, and um, my phone's been going off, so I hope I'm learning what matters to you. Um, F.F. Bruce wrote a long time ago, the once-for-allness of Christianity, which distinguishes it from other religions and systems, um, which are not related to any particular time, makes the reliability of writings um, a question of first importance. If you've ever read the Quran, if you've ever like, sat down with the Gita, the uh, Bhagavad Gita, you know, some of the Hindu documents or some of the other ones, like you very quickly get the sense the Quran doesn't matter... I mean, it was written, you know, in the 600s, you know, CE. Like, there's a time period in which it was written, it came about. But its historical significance, it is not rooted in the drama of history, in the rise and fall of kings, and in, in the same way that the Bible is. This is a very different document, the Gita, of course. So it really, ma- history matters when it comes to the Bible. So that's why we're bothering to engage this, okay? Um, so... Need for this seminar. Um, why do we even have to talk about this? It's very been interesting um, to me to like read a, a lot of medieval uh, scholars and 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 sermons from like medieval monks and stuff. I'm so into that when I have the time, uh, which is not that often, but I'm really into that. I promise. Um, um, they th- there were so many assumptions that they didn't make the way I do now. Like for them. You know, the documents were sacred, and they just were, and there was not this question. But all of a sudden, you know, not really all of a sudden, but over a course of time in the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, for different reasons, you know, um, highlighting reason and investigation and the again, scientific method, and beginning to apply that to literature, to, to, to history, and then... Um, you know, I mean, people started doubting Homer, you know, a long time ago. Homer even exists, you know. But then going into venturing, daring to venture into this critical method, uh, I don't mean critical in a bad way, I mean investigative, and, you know, Enlightenment, Renaissance, what, two sacred texts of all kinds. And then, you know, it's like, how do we know? Wait a second. Um, wait, the Latin translation of the Greek, which came out of the Hebrew, you know, tied to the Aramaic. Wait a second, how do we know? Wait, why does the Eastern Church, you know, why are all their Bibles come out of Coptic and, and, and Syrian languages, and now we're going to retranslate them back? Wait, what's going on here, and why is this different than that? 
why does this book have this sentence and the other book doesn't have this sentence? We discovered all these things, right? And biblical criticism was born. Biblical criticism is a scholarly approach to trying to figure out who wrote the Bible, why, um, what the purpose of it um, was, um, and all that kind of thing. But what's happened in our time is, um, you know, modern scholars have just cast a ton of doubt, right, on the New Testament, you know, Old Testament too, but it's kind of different, but on the Gospels, doubt on the Gospels, like, we're not sure you know, whether or not, whether these things are reliable witnesses to the quote-unquote real Jesus. Um, it's interesting to, like, think, to know, like, what modern, even scholars who started this historical critical, you know, method were, like, church people early on. And it's been interesting to watch, like, non-church people take up this flag, you know, over the last 100 to 150 or so years, um, Scholars have expanded on this, you know, this biblical criticism uh, method, and now, as you know, it's like all over the popular media. You know, Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, and then just, I mean, on PBS or or the History Channel or whatever. You know, and it's, it's coming into um, just like popular media and writers like Bart Ehrman. We're going to interact with um, all of this, like, and Dominic Crossan. You've heard of these people? They're they're the people on TV, um, and. Um, it's, it's this high-level scholarship of biblical criticism, and we're not sure about the New Testament, has injected itself into popular media, which has created a whole other level of things, which I'm actually also going to talk about in a couple days. So, I feel like it's everywhere. Um, again, I don't know where you feel like, but um, hopefully you're going to tell me. Um, to, you know, to put it short, a lot of people are basically now claiming that... Um, the biblical documents are basically the result of a of the telephone game, right? And I quote Bart Ehrman in 2001 started this. Um, just as you know, he said, she said, whatever, and we get down. Or as others have argued, the New Testament is really um, a collection of documents that say what the early Christians needed it to say. And I'm going to tell you some of that story too, Constantine and all of that stuff. Okay, and and uh, the early church, how we got the New Testament, like so. No, but really the New Testament is a collection of the early church needed Jesus to be fill in the blank. Okay? Um, and these are all things that are out there. Maybe you've heard of them. Um, I think the simplest way to describe what biblical criticism is all about is, and uh, I don't mean this to be pejorative at all, but like to, to peel back the veil to discover who the real Jesus was. Okay? Which is a compelling task. Like, what if I could look at all these ancient documents, know history, study history, and really discover who the real Jesus was? That would be kind of cool. And that's motivating. And it's motivating for a lot of people who don't even hold the Christian faith as their own. Um, Because Jesus is just an amazing historical figure. It's interesting from a historical perspective. It could be life-changing from a religious perspective. Everybody wants a miracle to believe. But So what if I could get my hands on... The real Jesus, like the real thing. What if I could go back in time and just have that certainty? Um, I think that's a worthwhile thing to do. So that's what scholars have been doing. And filtered out of that are all these conclusions and all these things. One of the most, um, probably the top dog in all of this, is this method called form criticism. 
So what <coughs> scholars have done, and since particularly uh, Rudolf Bultmann, um, early 1900s and through, have tried to get behind this veil to this real, to this real Jesus. And what they've looked at are the forms of speech in the New Testament. We've got things like parables. We have things like sermons, speeches from Jesus. We have miracle stories. We have narrative accounts of so-and-so did such-and-such. Okay, so these are types of literature. They're a genre of literature. But we find them all together in the New Testament, right? They're all kind of um, just you know, put together in a, in a story kind of situation. So scholars have begin to, begun to see that and say, wait a second, this could be important. These different genres in the New Testament. And then they ask the question, well, how did these come about? In the sense of what life situation made this necessary? What did Jesus encounter that made him tell this parable? I mean, a few assumptions there, but like what? You know, why did this happen? Or why is a miracle put in between these two parables? And why? what is going on with Jesus' speech? And the third aspect of what people are trying to do in terms of this form criticism um, you know, uh, approach to the New Testament is trying to discover, and this is where we're going to spend all of our time, the history of the oral transmission of these words. Okay, so somebody said the parable or something, and then it got, um, and it was it was needed for some particular reason, and then it got transferred to who knows, you know, moved around and finally got written down, and how do we know about all that? The, the th- that third issue, or that third place, is the problem area, so to speak. Like, how do we know that the history of what was said a gazillion years ago in a non-digital, non—I mean, pre-Gutenberg, pre-pre-almost ink. Okay, not quite. But um, you know, how do we know this is what we have? Um, I think it's a worthy quest. But right above, or you know, right as we get going, I just want to throw this out there, and we'll return to it later. But here's what I want us to keep in mind about this: as good as of an endeavor as that is. Um, here's the real problem, and if you're a historian and a history major, you know exactly what I'm talking about. All we have are the documents right in front of us. Did Shakespeare exist? I don't know. Did people revise it and whatever in the 1800s and add things to the canon? Yeah, probably. But like, honestly, what would, who was Homer? Did he? I don't know. Was he blind? You know, did what? No, the composer was he blind? I don't know. But what do we have? What we have are the texts in front of us. We have the documents in front of us, and that's all that we have. There's no, there's no cloud of information that will lead us. You know, what we have are the documents in front of us. And so as we go through, I want to keep attention to this idea of, can we discover the historical Jesus by peeling behind the veil of the Gospels in the New Testament and history to discover what really happened, but also to be honest with the fact that, like, Whatever our hypothesis is about what really happened, the only evidence we actually have are the documents in front of us. So everything beyond that, in a sense, is a hypothesis. Now, that can be done well. I just, um, And that's the way history works. And historians can probably do this part of the you know, lecture better than I can, but um, there is no such thing as like direct access to ancient history. There just isn't. Um, in the same way as like geology, right? You can go look at the rock. Um, and it actually existed 100 million years ago. I'm like, oh, that was easy. Okay. Um, next, uh, you know, um, not so easy. 
But anyway, the overall issue for me um, is this, this quest for historical Jesus. Um, the issue uh, for me, I mean, the thing I get frustrated about, and I, the thing I want to kind of blow up a little bit, is this demand that history and the quest for historical knowledge be done in the same way as science, like a hard science. Oh, what happened 100 million years ago? Oh, I'm going to go find that strata in New Zealand, okay, or, or the Grand Canyon, and I'm going to take it out and analyze, oh, okay, here's the, you know. History doesn't work like that. Um, and uh, N.T. Wright has done a lot of kind of writing on this about, um, it's very helpful, about modern scholars, particularly when they write for a popular audience, this happens all the time, it drives me nuts, demanding direct access to ancient history. It's impossible. Like, nobody has that. And so you'll see titles of books, like, you know, uh, Mark Ehrman is the worst for this. You know, he's like, um, you know, what we really know about Jesus, you know, colon, and what they're not telling you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> who's they? And, you know, as if he claims to have some cloud of knowledge, you know. Um, that's overdone. It's, it's marketing nonsense. There is no such thing as direct access to, to actually what happened. Nobody has that. Every historian comes out of a, a history degree saying, well, I don't know anything. <laughs> I know less than I did when I was in fifth grade. Okay? And I just, you know what I mean? It's like, um, and you know what I'm talking about if you're in that place. Anyway, we're going to try to do historiography um, and not like geology. Um, quoting from Richard Bauckham, Jesus and the eyewitnesses, like any other part of history, the Jesus who lived in first century Palestine is knowable only through the evidence that has survived. It just is. Okay? But anyway, we're going to interact with the evidence and just um, different versions of it. Okay, so here's my thesis, finally. Um, the New Testament, I think this is a thesis. I was a finance major, not a history major, so I don't even actually, don't tell me if this doesn't count as a thesis. Okay? Um, the New Testament is a reliable witness of the historical Jesus, what he said and did. I'm going to try and prove that in, in uh, big, heavy quotes there. Um, and basically, I think that because, or I think that might be possible because of eyewitness testimony. The nature of the material we're looking at, like the documents themselves that exist, um, and because the authors, whoever they were, of these documents at least, hear, me, hear what I'm saying, hear what I'm not saying, at least claimed to be doing good history. At least claimed to be doing good history. So that's the next four days, alright? Um, and again, I, I want to uh, answer your questions, so, um, so please get them out there. So here's my goal. That's my thesis. I think that's a thesis. Here's my goal. I think this is a goal. Um, to determine how a rational person could possibly consider the New Testament as a reliable document. There's a lot I didn't say in there. There's a lot I'm not going to try and prove interact with. My, I would be ecstatic if you came away from this as somebody who was doubting and could say, actually, I see maybe that somebody who has really thought about this and might even be a pastor or a religious person could actually rationally hold that these documents are historically reliable. I would, I would be overjoyed just to be able to move you that far. I would be overjoyed if you was like, you're sold on this, yeah, I believe the Bible, you know, KJV, ESV, whatever you want to believe, I believe in it. Yes. I believe in all the Bibles, all the things. Faith, you know. 
Um, if you came away saying, wow, I actually think I might be able to interact with my friends on this and engage the conversation, I would be out of my, if I equipped you for that, I'd be just ecstatic out of my skin. Um, so that's my goal. Again, a lot said there and a lot not said. Uh, but you can see why. We're going to do all kinds of topics. Um, I'm not going to go, you know, tell you exactly where we're going. But story of the New Testament canon. I'm going to deal with six huge objections to the reliability of the New Testament. If we get to the um, resurrection, I've got a little piece on that in the res- resurrection from N.T. Wright, which I think is awesome. And um, <coughs> we're going to do basically those things. Okay. So let's um, let's. Um, Let's engage faith a little bit, and then I want to tell you the story of how the scriptures came to be, Old Testament and New Testament, and then we'll be, um, and then we'll, that'll be it for today. So it's part one for today. Um, I came across some material um, that was done in a seminar here, two thousand nine, by a former uh, campus minister at Duke, um, little spokes, and um, I knew him before he. Um, moved on, good guy, and just super clear thinker and super helpful to me. And here's how he approached this eight years ago. And I, I, I stole this and put it in here because the more I thought about this, the more I was preparing for this, is extremely important. Um, and you've probably heard this language, maybe you haven't, and I wasn't planning on... Well, anyway, we're just going to do this. So the other thing I've encountered when talking about this subject is that there's an entire belief system that contradicts what you might call the conservative Christian belief that the Bible is God's word and reliable historical witness. It's not just that there are disagreements about the documents, that there are different translations, that there are errors in the New Testament. There are, there's a whole belief system behind the belief that the New Testament is a non-historical document and not a reliable witness. I think that's very important, and you know, um, and Tim Keller has called these, and we're all using this now. It's just, just um, so helpful. A defeater belief—that is, a belief that makes another belief <coughs> thereby invalid. So, like, I recognize we're doing this. We're not only dealing with facts and history, and whatever, but also a belief system. Um, and if you're coming in here, you know, on either side of this, like, yeah, I believe the Bible. Yeah, I'm not sure about the Bible. Um, allow me to open your eyes to the fact that behind those conclusions is a belief system. Um, and that's going to be important. And you'll see how that comes into play. But let me just, here's a few just uh, quotes that have, uh, from some extremely important things published out there that have formed this debate. Okay, um, another caveat. Um, a lot of the quotes I will use are from, maybe half of them, are from popular sources of popular media. Well, why aren't you using, you know, Boltman, the German guys, and, and J.G. Dunn, and all these kind of people? I'm like, well, because here, the reason is, because most people, your professors, unless you're in the religion or history department, have come across these things. Okay, so I'm going to try and use the more popularized versions of these things, just because that's... And you'll recognize these terms like telephone game and, um, you know, legendary uh, Jesus and all that kind of thing. So anyway, um, so here's from uh, Dr. Avram. Um, an accretion, that means, an, that means a lot, a pile. A pile of legends grew up about this Jesus. 
and was incorporated into the Gospels by various devotees of the movement. It rapidly spread throughout the Mediterranean world, primarily by the ministry of Paul, this Paul guy. And because that's so, it's impossible to separate these legendary elements in the purported descriptions of Jesus from those which, in fact, were true of him. Interesting. Uh, Funk Hoover and uh, Dominic Cross, who should be added here, wrote this book from uh, 1993, Jesus Seminar, extremely influential book. Scholars... <laughs> Heavy-hitting scholars who kind of wrote this popularized deal um, called the Five Gospels in 93. They say this. The Jesus of the Gospels is an imaginative theological construct into which has been woven traces of that enigmatic sage from Nazareth. Traces that cry out for recognition and liberation from the firm grip of those whose faith overpowered their memories. The search for the authentic Jesus is a search for the forgotten Jesus. I'm actually going to unpack that last sentence um, tomorrow or the next day. Um, that's, um, that's a pretty powerful deal there. And of course, Da Vinci Code, I mean, come on, just for fun. Like, he was everywhere, right? Dan Brown, it, it's really, nobody really takes it seriously, uh, except for your friends. Um, and, um, it's so funny, like, I don't, advertising doesn't affect me, I don't... You know, uh, of course it does. Uh, popular media, they don't form my opinions. Yes, they do. We all. Um, anyway. Um, the Bible is a product of man, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created as a historical record of, um, of tumultuous times. It's evolved through countless translations, laden words there, okay? Additions, revisions, history has never had a definite version of the book. Um, again, um, I don't think Dan Brown knows anything about doing history if he writes that. Um, history has no definite version of anything, um, ever. So here's what we're trying to take seriously in this seminar. Um, the defeater belief that modern biblical scholarship has embodied and created that the Bible can't really stand up to historical scrutiny. Everybody in here is probably somewhere on that you know, spectrum of interacting with that. Um, so can the Bible be trusted? I think this is the authentic Jesus. I don't know. We'll see. All right? Uh, anyway, let me just um, let's, let me tell you the story of the Old Testament and New Testament. The thing that was um, my favorite thing about learning about all this, like I literally, in going to seminary, I had no idea how, I didn't even see anybody with a Bible with on the phones. Anyway, I don't even know a Bible. Um, how the Bible, imagine the Bible. Um, what's your picture of the Bible? Little skin, uh, hardcover, leather bound, snap, uh, crochet cover with the ribbons. Okay. Um, how this Bible, this thing I have in my hand, where did it come from? How did it get here? Um, I think the story is fascinating. I'm going to tell you a super brief version of the story. One of my favorite current books about the story of the Old Testament and New Testament. It's called Whose Bible Is It? I think I wrote it in there, by Yaroslav uh, Pelikan. Super heavy hitter guy, won so many awards on for everything. Read everything by Pelikan. But it's super short, super readable, um, and I'm going to paraphrase in a few paragraph stuff. So I would just recommend you to that if you want more. Here's where um, Yaroslav Pelikan, I'm trying to be as Slavic as possible, my pronunciation of his name. Um, um, can you help me? How do you say his name? Really? I did fine? I win the prize. We're done. Let's pray. Uh, <laughs> uh, Pelican 
was super, super helpful to me because he is like, he's a heavy hitter in Jewish scholarship, Christian scholarship, Muslim scholarship. You know, he's not an evangelical Christian. Everybody respects him. He's won every award. The dude seriously has like 40 awarded doctorates, honorary doctorate degrees from universities. I mean, seriously, it's unreal, okay? The dude is amazing. You know, and I'm always nervous about reading these people. Like, they're never going to uphold what, what, I, what I believe. But here's what um, Pelican took seriously. And this is going to guide a huge portion of our time. Um, here's what he says over and over again in this book. Uh, this is my translation as somebody who's not an academic but would rather be out playing volleyball right now. Um, y'all, we got to take seriously that the Bible was oral, was never written down for a very long time. Y'all, we got to take seriously the fact that the Bible was spoken way before it was written down. An unknown time before it was written down. World, he says, we have got to take seriously to see the beauty of these religious documents. And he's talking about even the Quran too, and you know, and the Jewish Tanakh, the Old Testament, and, and the Christian scriptures. To take seriously the fact that these claims, these were spoken, this was a spoken text. I almost said document. No, a spoken text. Um, the primacy of the spoken word over the written word. Like, we are all about the written word and, te- and like, you know, everything. Wikipedia is a footnote. We can source everything and, you know, parse everything out and, um, But the Bible simply isn't like that. The Old Testament isn't like that. The story of the Old Testament is God spoke. Okay, we're done. Um, At some point it got written down. I don't know. But, you know, Genesis 1, God spoke and everything was created. God spoke to His people. God spoke out of the bush. God spoke on the mountain. God spoke to His prophet. God spoke. God spoke. And things are written down occasionally. I mean, seriously, like three times in the Old Testament has I ever mentioned anything written down. Um, thinking outside of like the Psalms, you know, because um, they're written down for music, right? Music, musical purposes. Probably much later. So here are the three. Moses in writing the covenant down, Exodus 34, God says, take a, take a, I don't know, some sort of hammer and chisel deal and take this rock and write these ten words down. Oh, okay. You know, he's up on the mountain, surrounded by fire and flame and smoke, and um, it's not intimidating at all. I thought being recorded was intimidating. I would be intimidated by Moses. I'd misspell, like, half the commandment, you know. um, Isaiah 38, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. God says to him, Now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it on a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Okay. So there's an example of God asking him to write stuff down. Same thing happened to Jeremiah, a prophet of God's spoken word. God tells him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. Um, That's about it. We know sometime around 600 um, BCE, from 2 Kings, we read this. Um, during um, Josiah's reign, it was kind of like a renaissance of, I think we're going to go back to believing in Yahweh, our God, in, uh, in the Jewish kind of religion. And uh, they had this massive temple, and they're doing all this stuff. There's this hilarious passage in 2 Kings 22a. This would be funny. Imagine 
Well, here's what it says. Um, and Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Okay, okay, hilarious aside. Imagine you've been going to church for your entire life and somebody says when you're like 50 years old, guys, you'll never believe what happened. In the, in, the, in, the, in the utility closet, I found a Bible. Right? Like, what have you been doing for 50 years? Like, you know, okay, that's just hilarious. And that's supposed to be hilarious. That's good literature. Another reason why I believe, you know, the Bible's legit. That's just amazing literature. But on the other end, like, this is about the only time that we have example of somebody saying there's a book they were been in scroll form. Like, here's a book of the law. How much is there? I don't know. Maybe the first five books, you know, maybe the Pentateuch. Uh, maybe more. Um, maybe some Psalms. Duh. Maybe some wisdom literature. Not really sure. So the story of the Old Testament is we don't know. Um, there's no trace of it. There's no, you know... Um, we're discovering more and more in archaeology. Um, about every month there's another big discovery having to do with all these things, but the spoken word pre-existent to the written, and that being important. Um, the Old Testament, honestly, as much as we want to know about proof of it, spent most of its early history in oral form, or in some form we don't have. Like, we just don't know. So that's disconcerting for people who want to see pr- prove to you know our scientism era. Um, <coughs> prove it to me, prove it to me. Right? If I see physical evidence, I'll believe. That's unnerving, but it's the truth. But it's also beautiful. And if you want more of that beauty, read the book by Pelican. It's um, it's he just does such a good job of it on why that's important and how that can spark imagination and why it could matter. Anyway, so here's another question. Like, when did the Old Testament even come to be? Like, when in history? Like, I don't know, pre-dinosaurs? After dinosaurs? Literally. When did it... so, um, so you've heard of the story of, uh, of Exodus. I think it was Mo- Moses involved in that? Yeah, okay. Um, something like that. So that happened in, well, 1400... B.C. or after. Somewhere between 1200 and 1400. We don't even know, we don't even know that when the Exodus happened. Believe it or not. Um, the 200 year period where it could be between the, the pharaohs and who was on, who was, you know, what was going on and um, the height of the Nile and all this kind of thing that people study. Alright? So, um, the Old Testament was written down sometime in between um, B.C.E. 1400 and 400-ish. BCE, when the uh, exiles, the Jewish exiles, returned from captivity, and they'd been there for a while, and Nehemiah and Ezra, Nehemiah builds the wall, right, and Ezra's the prophet and the scribe who comes and kind of helps them and writes stuff down, he's going back and forth between Babylon, all this kind of thing. And there's all kinds of things about, you know, people, um, um, you know, gathering the scriptures and all that kind of thing. And that's the end of the history um, of the Jewish people. So, it had to be written down, or at least happened, you know, in between those two time periods. So, um, again, more in the Pelican book, if you really want to know the super detailed stuff about this. But it wasn't until CE, so after, I'm doing CE on purpose, um, 
you know, AD, if that's, if that's your jam, um, after Jesus, or after the beginning of the Common Era, uh, three years before Jesus was born, um, assuming you believe Jesus is, is a historical person. Um, nine, between 90 and 100 CE, there was this uh, council um, in Jamni, or, or um, Jobna, or something, um, depending on how you pronounce it, in Israel, um, where some uh, rabbis met, a rabbinic council, probably a pretty small group, uh, led by, at least according to Pelican, um, Rabbi Akiba. This council of Jamnia um, met to um, kind of discuss disputed books in the Old Testament. So we actually have a record. This is the first record of Old Testament books and their names being discussed as being in the unit, okay? So there's this thing called canon, the Old Testament canon. Canon just means rule, a standard group of books, all right? Um, the Hebrew books were discussed here, and what we know from um, out of that is the Old Testament. Like, that's when, and after that, we have the Old Testament. Okay, that's even 500 years after the last bit of history of the Jewish people. So... And that's as good as we have. And actually, people doubt the Jamnia thing. I'm not going to uh, interact with that now. Ask me about that if you want to later. Um, but that's the sort of the Old Testament. Boy, so much we don't know, right? Uh, but at least you have that. Uh, let me just move the New Testament here and then um, seal it up. When we're talking about a canon, I'm just going to use that word from now on, but, you know, Old Testament canon, New Testament canon, it just means, like, rule. Uh, it's a standard measurement of... Uh, it's a ruler. It's a you know. You have, I'm sure you have some sort of canon of, of uh, well, it's like the uh, the periodical table. It's a rule. It's a standard. Okay, that's a canon of, of uh, elements. Is that what's on that thing? Yeah, elements. Gosh, <laughs> so not a science. Yeah, that's that was actually a genuine question that popped into my mind. Uh, that was not. Um, okay, so when it comes to the New Testament, what's the story of the New Testament? Um, you may have heard this, the Council of Nicaea in 325. They decided it was in the New Testament. The church declared it was the New Testament. Um, or did, um, did, after Constantine, and after a lot of other things, and Augustine, and all this stuff, and the fall of Rome, was the New Testament not decided until the 6th century? Here's the story. I have a super outlined, detailed thing in there for you. I'm not going to go through all those details um, about this, because that's just overwhelming and um, whatever. But you have it for your reference. The earliest mention of like somebody listing the names of the books in the New Testament, okay, is from a guy named Marcion in, in about 140 um, CE, um, and he is interesting because he was not a believer; he was a heretic. Um, he was highly anti-Semitic. Uh, anti um, he um, was, you know, excised from the early Christian church. He was a heretic, you know, disbelieved whatever a lot of things that people believe. That's what heretic is. Um, but it's interesting because we have um, a list from him of New Testament documents that he thinks are important about Jesus and the Christian religion. All right. So his deal is he takes away everything that's Jewish and everything that he doesn't like. All right. So that means that he in his list puts Luke, the Gospel of Luke, ten of Paul's letters. Okay. And even within those things, he literally edits, like takes out paragraphs, chunks, and throws away. I don't think this is in there. I don't think that was in there. And he has his own little list. Well, that's interesting for a lot of reasons. One, because it got the church going and decided, wait, what do we think 
It's in the New Testament. Okay, um, nothing like a little, you know, a little, um, little disagreement, um, little trouble causing to figure out what I really think. And then also here, here's a side note. This is somewhat of an argument from silence, but I think it's interesting. I'm going to leave it at this. Interesting that in Marcion's list, not one single of these apocryphal books, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Peter, you know, Shepherd of Hermas, none of these things are in his list. The only things that are in his list are the things that are in the current New Testament canon. A lot of people argued, like Bart Ehrman, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, it was one of the first ones, and it's been thrown out. Uh, well, nobody lists it. So I think that's interesting. You'll leave that conclusion there. Anyway, so the next list we have is this Muratorian canon. It was called that because it was found in the Muratoria, wherever the heck that is. I don't, I don't even look it up. I don't even know. Um, Somewhere in the Mediterranean. Um, so there are 27 total books in the New Testament that you have in your hand. 27 total. Okay, so that's what we're working with here. In about 170, um, we have 21 of those New Testament books listed and titled out in this document. Okay? 21 of the 27 by 170 CE. And I think it's interesting in this list that the author, whoever, we don't know who the author was, um, we also have other categories of things they were talking about. Like, they weren't sure about Second Peter, for example, or Second and Third John. These are disputed books. They also had a category for books that they thought were instructive and helpful, kind of like going to the Christian bookstore and reading a book that would help you. Shepherd of Hermes and these other things. Like, these are instructive maybe for Christian devotional practice, and then there was another category they had of things that were absolutely heretical. The Apocalypse of Peter is one. So even the early church, by 170, they aren't dividing up by like, probably the spoken word of God written down by apostles, etc. Interesting, helpful for your devotional life. Baloney. Okay? So, I mean, just those categories are emerging quickly. Um, again, tons more detail in your handout on this. but So the next major step forward in this is Eusebius, who's a bishop of Syria and a historian himself, uh, called the father of church history, kind of the first conscientious historian. Um, he weighs in on these lists, and he says that 22, he, his list has 22, all right, so we've gained one in 100 years. Yes! Um, 22 was undisputed by the church at that time. All right? Um, but this list wasn't um, sealed until the, gosh, the 300s. <coughs> Until Augustine and Jerome, a century later, um, you know, uh, have all of this. So, brief conclusion. By, um, you know, the end of the second century, 22 books of our 27 were pretty much standard. Okay? We still got five, granted, right? We still got five. And um, so, did the Council of Nicaea in 325 decide what was in the Bible? Already, you can kind of see, nah, not really. Um, right? The Council of Nicaea in 325, right, so we're 30 or some years after these other lists, um, they didn't even meet about this. They were meeting about the deity of Christ, and they happened to talk about the New Testament, and these things came up. But the interesting thing, people weren't, didn't even decide on the New Testament canon until after the Council of Nicaea. Um, they were debating this through 360, 370, 380, way after the Council. It's just historically inaccurate to say I mean, in every respect, previous and post of the council, the church, you know, made the New Testament, New Testament in 325. It's just, you've heard that, 
It just doesn't work, okay? Um, the first list that we have where all 27 books of your current New Testament are listed out is from Athanasius, who um, was Bishop of Alexandria, and these guys would, you know, write, kind of like, kind of like, um, distribute sermons for everybody. And he wrote this Easter letter, right? It's carry for his flock, and he writes this, you know, letter talking about all these other things. And in it, he just happens to, you know, talk about the New Testament canon. And that letter in 367 CE um, provides us with the first formal ecclesiastical description of what documents, at least their titles, are in the New Testament canon. So, we're 330 some years, 330 some years after Jesus. Um, and we have this list finally. Um, so what can we take away from this little bit? Um, some interesting tidbits maybe. A little bit of history, which I think is fascinating. I hope helpful for you. But like honestly, like I think one of the huge takeaways for me is that the vast majority of the New Testament documents were decided on you know, well before 325, and there was still debate about it after. And so the common thing of, like, the church decided, you know, everybody hates authority now, so I'm not going to believe in Christianity. The church is telling me what to believe in what documents. Like, ah, not quite how it happened. It was way more fluid, the process, okay? Um, and then certainly we could say by the end of the 4th century, in terms of the New Testament, debate was over about those last few books and the canon you, um, you have in front of you. Uh, was solidified. And um, that's the story, in basically, as much as we know. So um, so there's that. It's time or two minutes, three minutes before time. Um, thanks. And is anybody... Um, any questions before you, you run off? Um, I'm going to take uh, your questions and, and pray a lot and try not to be scared that I'm going to fail and uh, interact with them in the next week. Thanks for coming. I hope that wasn't too much. It probably was, but you came to the seminar for a reason, so thanks.